Jacob stealing the blessing from his brother Esau, all the way through into the New Testament and the disciples, right, from, from the betrayal of Judas to James and John saying to Jesus, hey, Lord, put one of us at your right and your left. Put us in charge, Lord. And as we saw when Jacob wrestled the angel, God is willing to engage us if it takes all night. In fact, God insists on doing so. God insists that we engage, when it, especially when it comes to those things that we hold most dear. Runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Katie's uh, talk with the kids about getting caught in the cookie jar reminded me of my childhood. Mom always kept a cookie jar on the kitchen counter, always kept it full. It was like ceramic. I can't remember if she made it or not. And when you put the lid back on, you had to be so careful not to make a noise. And my mother, I would... I would have my elbows on the counter and just set that thing on there. She could be downstairs. Get out of that cookie jar. She could, she could hear that little clank every time. You know, there's a kind of uh, getting caught with your hand in the cookie jar quality to this uh, Genesis text, to be sure. We've all grown up with it, so it's entirely familiar. And sometimes the best way to come at these familiar Bible passages is kind of sideways because... We've been hearing it for so long that we're, we're sure that we know, you know, the moral of the story and what, what, what we think it essentially means. We've talked about it and perhaps taught it in Sunday school and preached about it. And even then we can miss kind of some of the depth, maybe even miss the point. There are any number of legends about this uh, story of Adam and Eve in the, in the garden. One of them says that after being driven out of Eden, that Adam and Eve sat in shock for 83 days. A randomly specific number. Uh, they just sat there in a cave that God had given them for shelter and obsessed over what had happened. Uh, apparently they just couldn't even manage their, their misery all that well. And finally they just ended up pleading with God to let them return to the garden. But with sadness, God in this legend just says, no, there are some things that even God cannot do, and this is one of them. If God let them back in, it would mean that their having crossed this line uh, didn't matter. Well, we know the story, right? God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to till it, to keep it. And that was all God asked us to do, just to care for things and and tend to them and keep them. It was such a beautiful place filled with everything that we would ever need. And all God wanted was to entrust the care of this beautiful place to us, to give this into our hands as stewards of creation. It was really the only call that God had in mind for anyone in the beginning, just to enjoy the work of protecting and caring for the earth and everything in it. You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, the Lord said. And as long as we did that, 
Everything was permitted, just the freedom to care for and enjoy creation. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there was this one thing, this one boundary that we were not to cross. It's really not explained why that particular tree is out of bounds. We can, we can certainly wrestle with why that might be, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a limit, a limit to what we could do, what we needed to do, and we were told to respect that limit. Respect the fact that the gracious freedom that God has given us to enjoy life It has a boundary beyond which it is not in our own self-interest to go. But in this ancient story, human beings just had to test the limits. We had to push the envelope, assert independence, until finally uh, they are put out of the garden. Put out of the garden, as John Milton wrote of our own self-deception in Paradise Lost. All is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate, and the courage never to submit or yield. This is life outside of the garden. A focus on my will, my sense of justice, of revenge, of independence. Uh, I so often turn to Frederick Beekner and his treatment of these great biblical characters gives them a kind of contemporary, sort of accessible uh, approachability. And in his uh, in his Peace on Eve. He, there's one on Adam. There's also one on Eve in a book called Peculiar Treasures that I've all but worn out. Uh, I want to share a, a bit about uh, how uh, he conceives of Eve feeling about what was lost after they left the Garden of Eden. Beekner writes, like Adam... Eve spent the rest of her days convincing herself that it had all worked out for the best. Their new life didn't turn out to be as bad as had been predicted, and somehow their marriage weathered the change. If they had moments of terrible bitterness over what had happened, they had other moments when it became more of a bridge than an abyss between them, and when the question of which of them was to blame got lost in the question of how both of them were to survive. One son died an ugly, senseless death, and another went through life as disfigured by remorse as by the cleft palate. But all in all, things didn't go too badly. When the last child left home, it wasn't the easiest thing in the world to be alone again with a man who, after his third martini, might still lash out at her as a snake in the grass or a bad apple. But at least they still had their independence and their principles, which as nearly as she could remember were what they'd given everything up for. They stood 
however grimly at times, on their own feet. It was only once in a while at night, just as Eve was going off to sleep with all her usual defenses down, that her mind drifted back to the days when, because there was nothing especially important to do, everything was especially important. When too good not to be true hadn't yet turned into too good to be true. When being alone was never the same as being lonely. Then sad and beautiful dreams overtook her, which she would wake up, wake up from homesick for a home she could no longer even name. And this, of course, is our story. We are ever inclined to declare ourselves above the law, whether or not we are a king or a president. We most often refer to this act of disobedience in the Garden of Eden as the fall of humankind. The fall. But what we really see in this story, and so often in our own lives, is not so much a falling down from some high and lofty place as much as it is a kind of storming upwards, a storming of heaven, if you will. This one has always been a a problem for us. Just because we may be capable of something does not mean that we should necessarily do it. It's the kind of thing about which Albert Einstein tried to warn us when he said, the release of the power of the atom has changed everything except our way of thinking. Thus, we drift towards a catastrophe of unparalleled magnitude. Of course, the story of the Garden of Eden is as much about God as it is about us. And even after Adam and Eve are put out of the garden, God remains their God. God continues to be their Lord. And ever since that first encounter of wills took place in the Garden of Eden, it has been a fundamental part of every human being to struggle against God's will for our lives. In the scriptures, the story just keeps repeating itself. If we read carefully, Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel, what is that but an effort to storm heaven? Jacob stealing the blessing from his brother Esau, all the way through into the New Testament and disciples, right, from from the betrayal of Judas to James and John saying to Jesus, Hey, Lord, put one of us at your right and your left. Put us in charge, Lord. And as we saw when Jacob wrestled the angel, God is willing to engage us if it takes all night. In fact, God insists on doing so. God insists that we engage when it especially when it comes to those things that we hold most dear. And and what is that for you? Jesus and his disciples in Mark's Gospel are walking along the road on the way to Jerusalem, and a young man, a wealthy young man, approaches, and he throws himself at Jesus' feet and says, I've kept all of the commandments, Lord, since... 
I was in youth group. And, and Mark tells us that Jesus, looking at this wealthy young man, loved him. It's a hauntingly beautiful detail to me. Jesus looked at him and loved him, and that's when Jesus told him to go and sell everything he has and give it to the poor, and then you're in. Come and follow me. And the young man we know went away grieving. Now, Jesus didn't go around telling everyone to do this, to sell everything they had and give it away, but he said it to that guy because he loved him. What is that thing for you? Because whatever it is, God is determined to give you something better. God places us in the garden of creation and invites us to wrestle with our loyalties. Could be material wealth, to be sure. It could be some sense of security, or some idea of success, or some overwrought sense of patriotism, or some political ideology, or religion. God encourages us to wrestle with all those things we have decided are so central to our understanding of the world and of ourselves to give us something better, something more lasting, something more beautiful. In Christ, we are welcomed back into the garden. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus will say where there is beauty and grace and abundance and community and no need for my unconquerable will or study of revenge or immortal hate. School is out. And I hope you find some time to experience those places in creation that bring you rest and renewal during these coming weeks. You know, the great naturalist and author and father of our national parks, John Muir, wrote in his journal that no synonym for God is so perfect as beauty. Whether as seen carving the lines of mountains with glaciers or gathering matter into stars, or planning the movements of water, or gardening, all is beauty. So St. Paul reminds us in the reading from 2 Corinthians that Grace read, since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. God in the gospel wants to give us something better.
something more lasting, something more beautiful, so that the glory of the Lord might overflow for all. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me.